Hi, I'm Ian, co-founder of Dig Insights and president of Dig's innovation insights platform, Upside. Welcome to Dig In. Dig In is the place to stay up to date on what's happening in the world of innovation, research, and technology, to find inspiration from today's business and innovation leaders, and to properly dig into hot topics that matter for consumer brands right now. And when applicable, we'll bring our own research to that conversation. In this episode, we brought Marcy, she's an EVP here at DIG, and Walid, who's the Global Director of Shopper and Channel Insights at Coke, together to discuss a few different topics. Um, I think, you know, one of the most interesting things we're going to talk about is how Walid and his team are approaching the task of building a shock-resistant research culture, uh, but we're also going to ask some key questions around what should people looking, be looking at right now in terms of customer insights, and how should they sort of be getting ready for what's next. So uh, thanks so much for joining me today, Walid. My pleasure. Um, do you mind just giving the audience a quick overview of your role at Coca-Cola and what you're up to? Absolutely. Um, I currently lead the Global Shopper and Channel Insights at Coca-Cola. Um, uh, I'm part of the Global Human Insights team, which is a newly uh, formed organization. And I, I can, I'll give more background on that um, later on. But basically, I'm responsible for um, the ad hoc shopper research design and frameworks. Um, typically, my role is supporting the integrated marketing experiences, um, revenue growth management, and end-to-end unified journey. And I'm also responsible of the channel futures practice. Very cool. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. A lot, that's a lot of different topics that we could cover today. So we'll try to, we'll try to stick to the most interesting and, and uh, ones for today's conversation. Marcy, always great to have you here. Uh, maybe you could just give a quick overview of the work you're doing at DIG right now. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ian. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm an executive VP with Dig Insights. And in that role, I lead several client service teams to help our clients essentially better understand the market and their consumers and help them kind of use those insights to drive their brands forward. I've had the privilege of working with Wally for several years now, and it's great to connect today to talk about how our industry is adapting to this new climate and insights. Thanks. And moving forward is an interesting choice of words because we all, I think, kind of feel like we've been, at least in our personal lives, a little stuck for the last 18 months, to say the least. It's been hard to make plans on a personal level, but that's even more challenging for companies. So Walid, when you're looking forward, uh, what are the questions that we as researchers need to be asking ourselves right now about consumers versus, you know, what we may have been looking at in the past? Mm-hmm. There are, there are in, uh, indeed a uh, few questions that keep me up at night, and uh, this is just me thinking out loud, um, but I'm constantly asking myself, um, how do I uncover insights without asking? And that's been one of the major rebalance that we've um, established uh, going forward as a function is to try and be more observational um, without necessarily interrupting, without um, relying heavily on, on, on memory bias and recall. Um, but also, how can we push the organization and the, and the business owners to truly immerse themselves um, in the shoes of, of our audiences um, to better understand the human experience? I think what this pandemic has uh, really challenged us on is, do we really understand the individual? Um, beyond what we 
def typically define them and put them in a, in a particular box that is most often, um, you know, manufacturer, manufacturer lens. Um, we, we like to categorize our consumers and shoppers and most importantly separate, separate these two. Um, and, so, and most often they're, they're the same individual, right? And it's easy to get lost in this big amount of big data and forget about the human aspect and the human understanding um, out there. So th these are one of the one of the elements that made us rebrand ourselves internally to human insights and really bring that holistic um, understanding to to the brands and and the organization. But also when you when you reflect a little bit on what um, what happened in the last two years, I'm wondering if we are right now truly prepared uh, for the next time the external environment is gonna go through a rapid change um, and experience maybe another fast momentum. Are we ready? Like in these past two years, did we surround ourselves with the right routines, the right disciplines, um, the right approaches and, and the right partners to, you've, you've, you've alerted to it uh, in the past, become more shock resistant to what the external environment is gonna put on our plate to deal with. So, so what's the, what does the process look like when you're leading it? What, what is that, what is that shock resistant culture? Because, you know, I've worked with multiple companies and we've, you know, actually a few years ago, I read it, it was an excellent book called Predictable Surprises about the idea of scenario planning, that there were many things that we could likely foresee happening and that you know, for us to pretend that they weren't going to happen wasn't doing us any favors and we should be doing scenario planning. But I don't think anybody saw COVID happening. So I guess it goes from being just generally scenario planning to just being resilient. And so how do you create the, that shock resistant culture at Coke, Willie? I think it's, I mean, we've all been doing some sort of a scenario planning, uh, maybe not as frequent as we've been doing it in the past, uh, in the past two years. But I think for me, a shock-resistant culture is both external and internal um, facing exercise. So externally, for me, being shock-resistant means that you have the, the, the needed flexibility and reactiveness and resilience to manage the, the, the rapid change, the disruption, adapt yourself, reshape, um, in order to fit in the new reality, or at least turn the risks that comes your way into, into opportunities. So there is an aspect of doing that internal audit and being very transparent with, with yourself. Am I, am I surrounded with the right tools, the right processes, the right approaches, and the right partners to be able to, to deal with that? And then when you look internally, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's one of the challenges that we all face um, as an organization is that discipline around prioritization. That, that, you know, we all suffer from that syndrome of everything is urgent and everything is a priority. And even when you prioritize, um, it, it doesn't always get down to that really distinct list of work that matters more. So I think to become shock resistant, internally, you need to have really like a crystal clear clarity on what are your priorities? What are your big bets? What is the work 
that matters most and that's going to get you to your uh, growth objectives, the long-term growth objectives, and eliminate all the noise that's around that. Because it's very easy to try and do as many things as, as, as you can. But I think that as an organization, we realize that we needed, we needed to be more um, disciplined and more, I would say, rigorous in, in prioritizing. And just recently, we've, we've undergone like a major global reorg. And, and part, of the, part of the exercise that we're doing now constantly is borrowing a little bit from the agile framework and really putting together a consistently networked global backlog of initiatives. These are the ones that matters most. And so these gets the priority when it comes to human, um, financial, and time resources. And so if we get those done well, then we can think of uh, what can we bring uh, further on the table. So we need to become shock resistant. I would say um, be flexible, make sure you're truly agile, resilient, but also make sure you're crystal clear on your objectives, your priorities, and hold your ground um, on staying focused on these, while also keeping some sort of a margin of um, flexibility, because you never know. The next thing will come our way will probably push us to readjust our priorities, but at least there is a, there is a good foundation in place that will allow for that um, shift to happen in a, in a much seamless way. Yeah, and I think, Agile means a bunch of things, but to me, one of the, the interesting trends that got accelerated, partly because of COVID for sure, was the need for shorter timelines. Um, did, you, did you find that as well at Coke, uh, Waleed? Did you find that suddenly projects that previously people had earmarked for you know eight or 12 weeks when they were like sort of larger studies, uh, people need, just started demanding answers faster? Or, or were you able to sort of hold the line on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the shorter timeline, I mean, really doesn't do justice to, um, to, to the value that we bring to the, to the table. And quite frankly, um, I don't think that shorter timelines did any good to the, to the research industry. And, and we're so, surely experienced it with all the issues with regards to data quality um, and, and, and the, in that quest for speed, we kind of lost sight of um, the quality of the information we're, uh, we're working with, but also the quality of the experience we're putting our respondents and the audience we want to learn from through. So I think that the, certainly the, the need for agility is a topic uh, that we're trying to put the right um, disciplines around, but we're also talking about looking at the process end to end, um, often that need for speed and, and pressure comes from the fact that we don't do enough due diligence in the earlier stages of any process, whether you think about um, an innovation, a communication development, a packaging redesign, um, you know, a, a new route to market. I think we often um, skip some crucial steps um, we, we needed to rebalance the dynamic between informing decisions and, um, which I hate that word, validating decisions, which for me, it's more about uncovering risks and opportunities rather than validating a decision. If, if a decision has been made, there's no point to be searching it. But 
um, I, I think that for me, the, the research, the research function um, needs to work probably much harder at getting a seat at the conversation at the table um, in the earlier stages um, of any of any work stream or initiative and make sure that we do two things. Um, knowledge harvest, make sure you utilize the, the, the knowledge capital that you've generated over the years that may give partial or even sometimes um, total answers to a few of the questions and then commission new new work that is solely meant to bridge those knowledge gaps. But I think is those conversations as they happen more and more often against a clear list of priorities, I think we're gonna be able to demonstrate um, more how we can bring value to the table, how we can be agile on how much due diligence needs to be done, depending on the, on the challenge you're, you're trying to solve for, but also organizing a research system between us as insights leaders and um, in our vendor vendor partners on how can we put together those agile um, approaches and procedures um, that can enable us to get to that fast needed answers, but also holding our ground when the full due diligence needs to happen. So the, the need for speed should absolutely not come at the expense of the quality of the, of the outcome. But I do acknowledge sometimes it's, a, it's not an easy balance to find. And so, uh, you know, I think I just want, I'm gonna to turn to Marcy for a second. Uh, Marcy, you know, Waleed talked a lot about the need for agile, the need for, he talked about the trend of moving towards more observational data or actual data versus uh, survey data. Um, I think a lot of people are struggling with a lot of different things right now. When, when, this, when this pandemic first struck, I remember some of the work that we were doing at DIG was related to proving that research was still valid at all that you you know that the, the studies they'd done two weeks ago still still applied that this the winning ideas were still the winning ideas things have moved on and there's been a little bit more stability now i would judge than there was but there's still a lot of questions that are keeping people up at night what are the questions that you know your clients what, what's keeping them up at night right now yeah, you raise a good point, Ian. I think, you know, at the beginning of the, the pandemic, a lot of the questions were centered around, you know, when will things return to normal and, and what will that look like? And I think that, you know, as time progressed and, you know, we realized that there was so much uncertainty, you know, and, and consumers aren't necessarily very well equipped to articulate what they might do with a number of different outcomes. Um, you know, many of our clients were using kind of scenario-based testing to understand how consumers might react to different strategies uh, that they could put into place. Um, but as well, I think there is a, a real recognition that, you know, for the first time in a long time, you know, the pandemic really forced consumers to change and really consider maybe for the first time some very entrenched habits um, and perhaps, you know, think critically about some of their decisions for the first time. A lot of that behavior that was very automated was now, you know, contested, um, whether that be because of, you know, availability or supply chain issues or the way that they were interacting with brands. Uh, so it was a really interesting time to think about brand loyalty and what that meant. Um, also, you know, looking into and digging into 
what Canadians were really prioritizing right now and how those shifts in values might start to uh, you know, translate into behaviors with brands. So a lot of really interesting content to dig into. And I think it's interesting that Waleed mentioned, you know, kind of the observational research that was certainly something that we saw grow in the pandemic. Um, you know, I think there was kind of a recognition that consumers might not be able to articulate you know, what they're doing or why they're doing it. And there was a lot to be, you know, to learn by, by simply watching them, you know, listening in on some of the conversations that they were having. So uh, I think, you know, it was a, a time to really think about how you can integrate different types of data collection, both, you know, quant, qual, but as well, really working with clients closely on, 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 you know, harvesting the information that they already have through behavioral measures, whether that's through things like loyalty programs or POS data. Um, half the battle was kind of making sense of all that information and bringing it together in a meaningful way for clients. Right. And, and so, Waleed, you talked a lot about the need for prioritizing, um, making sure that you're aligned on priorities, getting that aligned, you know, with larger groups. Can you, you want, can you talk a little bit? Is there anything you can share about what, you know, looking forward to 2022? What, what are you looking to prioritize uh, within your function looking forward? Yeah, I think we have a couple of uh, really exciting initiatives and work streams that um, will set us up for success definitely in the next in the next few few years. And and some of these we've already initiated um, this year. But we're as as we're looking at the environments out there, and we're moving from kind of a linear type of uh, shopper engagement that used to be really siloed by channels and, and channels were not really stepping into each other's uh, territories and there was very few blurring out there. Right now we're looking at a unified commerce landscape where consumers are, are, are really not, uh, have redefined the, the expectations, the roles and, and, and the value that they're getting from all those different options out there to source the solutions for their everyday um, unmet needs. So one of the major uh, work streams that we're working on is really trying to understand that unified journey dynamic um, and really putting the, 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 the focus on the end-to-end -end aspect of it. So thinking about the consuming, shopping, and buying mindsets and how do they how do they interact with each other? So who drives, which mindset is driving what? Um, which is the dependent, which is the driver uh, in, the, in that particular journey? And really clearly articulating um, how do we design the, the best end-to-end -end experiences, not to interrupt journey, but how can we provide that delightful, seamless, frictionless experience for the, for the, for the consumers and shoppers without necessarily fall into the trap of um, interrupting the, the journey. I think that nuance is what is what's probably on many, many organizations challenges out there because we're all fighting for attention. Um, attention has probably become one of the scarcest economic uh, resource out there. Um, and that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting first to get that attention. And then how do you convert that attention into um, a fruitful engagement that will lead to um, a transaction for your business. So that's one of one of the big pieces of uh, of work that we're doing um, recently. And we started with China because one of the most complex environments out there. But we're also looking at markets who are leapfrogging 
um, lately, when you think about MGI and the boom of online shop, shopping powered by uh, mobile, it's just fascinating to see um, economies and, and trade environment uh, not experiencing that slow growth momentum, but really like rapidly growing out there, which makes the, the, the knowledge quest uh, equally challenging and exciting. Well, without giving away any secrets, are there like, let's talk like specifics around methodology for a moment. I mean, a lot of what you're talking about, observational, um, you know, but self-reported in the moment. So methodologies like shop-alongs, self-directed shopping journeys with a phone is relatively new, but still it's been around for a bit. Uh, ethnography. Is there anything really new and novel that you feel like you're doing here that that's giving you, you know, some some deeper information? I think it's, to, to your point, probably the 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 essence of the observational methods are not something that are particularly new, but I think that the, the technology that, that we're seeing being put into the service of the observational um, techniques have elevated the practice. And I think that that's, that's what we're trying to, um, to leverage is how can we sharpen further the observational methods out there? Because to your point, if, if you really take a step back, Besides all the passive metering and the, and, and the AI-based and machine learning um, methods out there that help you deal with that vast amount of, uh, of historical data, um, there's nothing that is disruptively new. But the way you collect the information, the way you design the respondent experience through, through, the, through technology is actually helping the, the, the outcome to be of a better quality, to allow for that exercise to be engaged with more often, because it's, it's, it's much easier to go to survey data. You know, we've all done it, it's easy to put in place, but then again, you're always left wondering how, how big is that gap between the say and the do? And so I think that what's helping us as we keep an eye on the, on the technology applied to research is how can it help us be more observational without necessarily losing the human experience and making sure that the respondent is, is not behaving unnaturally because there is that lack of humanity in the, in the experience we're checking, we're checking him through. So markets like China, highly complex, um, insanely rich data, allow us to really access those, those observational sources of data, whether they're first party, third party type of data, and really connect the dots and put the story together. In other markets that are less rich, uh, data rich, we're experimenting a little bit more with, um, you know, bringing in new technologies to help us with the observational exercises and seeing how the market reacts to it, uh, while acknowledging that, you know, sometimes the, the the accessibility of the technology might act as a barrier. So I would say we're we're not revolutionizing the the, the research world, but we're definitely um, experimenting more. Um, and bringing in more innovative uh, ways of looking at research and experimenting and just learning on, on the way. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, it, I think it's really interesting because I think often we think of, you know, the more traditional CPG type companies as being hampered to a certain degree on data because you don't necessarily have the same wealth of data that a bank does or a, 
a cable provider does or, or a, you know, cable and internet um, or phone. But at the same time, often I think that those companies, and we work for a lot of those as well, they almost get hampered by all that information because it, it's hard to turn it, sometimes it's hard to turn it into a story. And sometime, sometimes predictive models predict outcomes that are not even that relevant. Whereas I think when you're more targeted, like the work that you do, Walid, you you know you're following them through that story from the right from the beginning right to the end. You know you can spot easily where the important kernels of information are coming up. So to your point, as long as you can, as long as you can collect it sort of in an unobtrusive way, uh, so that you believe that it's true. I think you're getting to the answer oftentimes faster than the people with, you know, massive amounts of data. But yeah. I guess you're right. It's interesting to see, you know, it's, it, it is the nuance of how the technology is used because I, you know, we've all done shop alongs. They can be pretty obtrusive. Um, it's, it's hard to do a shop along and not have the person act in a way that, you know, that they're trying to please the interviewer. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's always that challenge of observing without um, without uh, adulterating the natural behavior, and I think uh, you know a lot of a lot of partners out there are you know wrapping their heads around okay, what how can we make it a, a better exercise? And sometimes you don't even need to, um, to to ask any questions. And, and we've been talking to a to a supplier. Um, the, the beginning of this year um, where they have a really interesting and simple, pretty much simple way of tracking, um, you know, the, the, the journey of a shopper in a store by simply putting um, a tracker on their, on their shopping cart. Yeah. So you, you are in a position to actually follow that, that person from the moment they, they grab that, that, sh that shopping cart all the way to when they reach the, the, the cashing out area. And you can actually know, where did they stop? For how long? Did they notice anything just by following the path? And you get so much richness of, of, of behavioral insights um, against that environment without having to ask any single question. And I think that, that the idea is not to replace what we're doing today fully by these methods, but I think it's all about calibrating. So when you have the, the stated data, which is sometimes important to also, you know, probe a little bit with the consumer, see how they interpret an experience, how they articulate um, that, that particular experience. But it, the idea is to bring in another source of information that could help calibrate the, the, the story and make sure that we've looked at it from various angles. And now we can with certainty um, articulate the insights we put in front, in front of the organization. So um, I think what I hope definitely for the future is that we're not going to go into another extreme, that we're, we're going to find a happy middle where we're mostly looking to extract the best of all these options that we have out there without necessarily, you know, falling into the trap of replacing one with another or, you know, fall in for that shiny new object syndrome. Um, and I think that's, that, that's a message that I, at least for myself, com constantly uh, reminding um, <laughs> myself to say like, okay, let's, let, let, let's find a happy middle. Let, let's find a common ground that we can be exhaustive 
um, without necessarily trying to, 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 to do that one in, one out type of uh, mindset with research approaches. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm always impressed by the work that, uh, that we do in, in concert with, with, uh, with Coca-Cola. It's always intelligent. There's always really good design thinking behind, the, behind it. Um, and obviously you've put, done some very smart planning in terms of how you're setting up your teams. So let's have a little bit of fun now. But if we look at some other industries, which ones do you think are shifting gears effectively? They're, you know, using new approaches to like sales and distribution and marketing and or conversely, who do you think's not doing it well at all? Um, either Marcy or Waleed. Marcy, you want to head off, uh, start off on this one? Any, any thoughts on any, any, any companies or, or, or brands that you think are, are well-equipped or ill-equipped? You're going to put me on the spot to talk about ill-equipped brands, Ian? <laughs> well, none of our clients. <laughs> Yeah, yeah no, I, th I mean, I, I think it, it's interesting, like coming back to that idea of just being agile, I think that the industries that I've seen kind of react, you know, perhaps most nimbly through this pandemic have been uh, industries like, like, you know, like retail and grocery, you know, QSRs, uh, where some of the, the industries such as, you know, banking and telecom have maybe been a little bit slower to, um, to react. Um, I'm not sure if that's just a function of the speed of change within those within those industries, but I think that you know those who are who are tied to the you know very quick turn consumer categories are kind of forced to 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 respond quite quickly, and I think they also benefit from a real like test and learn culture as well. Um, you know, looking at things like your know, restaurants, retail, you know, making even small changes. Um, you know, it's no small feat, but they can very quickly learn and see how those how those changes are impacting consumers and their bottom line at the end of the day. So because there's such a quick turn from the consumer standpoint, it creates a great environment, I think, to test and learn, see what's working and adapt as necessary. What about you, Walid? Any, you know, you know, potentially Coke partners where you said, wow, you know, what they've, how they've reacted was incredibly smart and, uh, you know, glad that glad that they're a partner of ours. No, I think uh, when I, if I think of industries that um, really fascinated me uh, recently, I, I think we'll all agree that the retail industry itself is going through the most notable transformation we've observed recently. Like, while many called of the 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 death of retail, I think that retail is really being resurrected in the most exciting way possible out there. Um, you could see some of the businesses really transforming um, and being about a business of experiences uh, because today, even as a brand, like, like a, even as an FMCG, unfortunately now our, our benchmark is no longer our peers in that industry. Like we are in the business of experiences right now. And so we get compared to an experience any individual will have on online merchants or for a service industry out there. So the, 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 the standards have, have expanded uh, drastically. And so new expectations are being created out there. And so if we, if we don't keep up, um, it's, it's gonna be hard to compete for that, uh, for that attention and, and, and affinity with the consumer. Because at the end of the day, we're first all of us fighting for that mental share before we even get to the wallet share. 
And so if you're, if you're struggling to, to be front of mind, um, your chances become slimmer and your um, odds to strike a transaction at the, at the point of commerce beca- becomes much more um, challenging. It comes with a much higher heavy lifting. Um, and so I've, I've read a book recently from, a, from, a, from an author called uh, Doug Stevens. Um, his book is called Resurrection, Resurrection Retail. And it, it, it's fascinating again how to see how the, the, these various retailers across the world have completely reshaped their business model. Um, and I like a particular quote for him that says, right now the audience or any audience is the new channel. It's no longer the store, but the individuals themselves are becoming the channel. The stores or the retail is becoming the media. As you think about the, the, the new media dynamics out there, traditional media is, is probably not the, the, the major point of connection that you should pour your investment um, into. And now commerce is everywhere. Commerce is where the attention is. And I think that's a, that's a big shift in mindset versus, where we, versus how we approached um, allocating resources out there to, to, to strike those business transactions. Today, I can buy literally anything in any platform possible. And so does my, reso- do, does my resources need to still be hooked into the traditional uh, touch points or should I shift gears and, and, and follow where the attention is today? And that comes with a challenge uh, also because you know, the, the, the complexity of the environment out there and the, and the options have grown so much. Our budgets, uh, at least in the FMCG world, has, has not grown as, uh, as much. And so it's, a, it's still the same base, but now it's about how do we allocate those resources effectively? Because we're not gonna get 10 times our budget because there are 10 more platforms out there where we can engage with, the, with our audiences. And so all of this, um, I think the, the, the retail and brands such as um, Nike, how, how they repurpose their retail assets to be an engine for experiences. And so pretty much, and, and, and I'm assuming here, I have absolutely no official confirmation uh, whatsoever, but probably the expectation that they have from their store is no longer 100% on generation sales. But what can they do through that asset to leave any person who goes in with a memorable experience that will guarantee a transaction that will happen? Not necessarily in the store, but they've created all the, uh, all the effective environment and, all, and given all the chances for that transaction to happen at some point in time. So I think that the examples of, of, of Nike is really great on how instead of, of feeling defeated by um, the effectiveness of an asset, how can you repurpose it to your, uh, to your advantage? So uh, it, it's, it's fascinating to see how, how the, the business models and the engagement models are evolving out there. Yeah. I mean, I think retailers and FMCG, like grocery stores, et cetera, I think they did quite well. I think they reacted well. They put in um, you know, right, the safety protocols as quickly as they could. They still tried to keep their stores somewhat fun to shop at. 
you know, where I saw, I think the biggest failures during this pandemic personally, and I'm not going to name the specific retailers was more in like the larger hard goods space, like uh, Uh trying to do something like order a barbecue, get it delivered and or returning it even a month ago was absolutely terrible. And, and it was never great, but the pandemic has made it so much worse that I think, I think that's the space that really didn't keep up. I think, you know, to your point, Marcy, I think that most of the, uh, you know, most of the fast food players did a fantastic job. They were so quick to react, to get onto delivery apps, to update their own apps, to facilitate delivery more easily. Many of them built a ghost kitchen outlets so that they could service larger areas. I mean, they were so quick to react and respond. And I think they did an incredible job on, you know, at least the, the larger ones did. Um, but I think the, the hard good guys um, really lagged and, and, and have, have suffered considerably um, during, during the pandemic. And obviously movement of goods across the border was also impacted and created a lot of problems. So I think it's like, there's tons of work to be done. And I think the interesting, you know, the entertainment function of retail is going to obviously be important again, to your point, Waleed, like, I'm not going to go to the, I'm not going to go to a mall because I need to, uh, to go to the mall to try things on. I'm going to go partly because it's entertainment and we've seen that move, but I think the larger, the larger goods, the larger hard goods, like the, you know, barbecues, washers, dryers, furniture. Um, I feel like that's still ripe for, uh, for innovation on the distribution value chain. Yeah. Because I think they've really lagged. Any kind of last thoughts, uh, Marcy or Walid, that you'd like to, to leave on? Yeah. So I think one takeaway for us through all of this, Ian, was that, you know, <laughs> we're seeing less and or fewer and fewer requests for the kind of you know one project fits all when it comes to the work that we're doing with our clients um you know to Willie's point while while the projects may not be tighter and shorter in cycle i think there's more of a recognition that you know one methodology and one approach can't necessarily solve all you know and fill all the gaps so um i think you know as as insights providers and partners with our clients we're having to think really critically about what are the right mix of tools to bring to the table um, I think that's really going to continue on like, even beyond the, the pandemic. Waleed, any, any yeah. final thoughts? Uh, for me, I would leave the audience um, and any listener out there with one composite word, shock resistant. I think that's, that's one thing um, that we probably need to, to get mastery uh, against. Um, and it might not be needed in the, in the, in the immediate next three years, but thinking about your business, think about everything you do out there to be first and foremost, shock resistant. I think it's one thing that, um, I would encourage anyone out there to, to spend some quality time thinking about. Great. Any, any book, any, uh, any book records on that? Cause you mentioned a great one, I think. Oh yeah, I've, uh, that one about Doc uh, Stevens' uh, Resurrection Retail is a really good book to um, if, if you're interested in um, getting into his perspective about uh, the future of retail. Um, but recently, I've also started another uh, another book for anyone who wants to just 
you know, it, it, remind, remind ourselves why is it important to understand the human in everything we do and balance that heavy data with, with, with human understanding. I would, uh, I would suggest a book called The Secret Lives of Customers. Um, I, I can't remember the, 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 the authors of um, right now, but um, it's telling the story about how, is it, how it's important to keep the human understanding alive um, in a novel format, which I found that pretty, uh, pretty intelligent and smart because it makes the, the reading experience quite smooth, quite easy, but it does yet remind you about the principles of, um, okay, there is the data, but there is also a human in front of us that we're trying to talk to and that we need to understand uh, first and foremost. Great, we'll look those up and we'll include the links in the description. Thank you so much for your time, Waleed. Thank you so much, Marcy. Uh, hope th hopefully this conversation was interesting for you. It was really interesting for me. And I'll hope to catch up with both of you very soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Dig In. If you want more information about Dig Insights or Upside, please check us out on LinkedIn or at our websites at diginsights.com or upside.com. If you have any ideas for future episodes or would like to be a guest, please feel free to direct message me through the LinkedIn app.